This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This is the first of a series of substantive sessions in which we look at particular effects of trade liberalization. Um, this, this session, there are two papers and two discussants. The title of the session is Trade Liberalization on Wage Inequality and Poverty. Um, the format is going to be as follows. We're going to have each paper giver speak for between 25 and 30 minutes, and I'm going to try hard this time to keep people on time. And um, it will be followed immediately upon a 10-minute response by the discussant. We will, we will then uh, open it up to general questions, um, people on the panel peop and people um, in the audience. Then we'll go back and do, and do the second paper and then um, with, with, with the same format. Um, I've been asked that everyone speak into the mics, including if you ask questions, we'll give you a mic so that we can record it more clearly. Um, so we'll begin now with, a, with a, a paper entitled Trends in Tariff Reforms and Trends in Wage Inequality, presented by Guido Porto from the World Bank. Um, his discussant will be Maurice Kugler from Southampton University. Thank you. Uh, well, so um, this is uh, actually a joint paper with uh, Sebastian Galliani, who is now at, the, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. And um, let me just um, uh, begin with some of the questions that we want to address in this, uh, in this paper. Um, this is a paper uh, that I think belongs pretty much to the uh, uh, trade and wage inequality literature. And you know, as such, the, uh, the questions that we want to um, ask are basically we're interested in knowing or in learning how uh, trade, trade reforms affect uh, wages. So this includes whether there is an effect and the, uh, the direction of the effect, whether you know, wages will be go up or down with a reform and to what extent uh, that will happen if, if it happens. And we are particularly interested in looking at the skill premium because this will have implications from the trade liberalization episodes to the distribution of income, in, uh, in, especially in developing countries. Um, and um, so, so th those are the, uh, basically the questions that we have in mind uh, um, here. Now, many of you may be wondering, well, what's, what's new about this uh, paper? What, what beyond another case study, what do we have to offer in this paper? And I think we have some you know, interesting things to offer. Um, the, uh, the, the key thing is that if you look at the literature, which is, you know, there is a vast, vast literature on, on, on trade, uh, trade, trade liberalization and wages out there, so if you look at most of this literature, uh, the papers look at uh, one episode of trade liberalization across industries. So identification comes from the uh, comparison, say, of industries, uh, the different experiences of different industries before and after an episode of, of, of uh, trade reforms. Now, of course, there are papers with one cross-section, but most of the, uh, the, uh, the good papers uh, uh, look at, uh, at at least one episode of, of reform. Now, here in this paper, we will add some historical component to this literature. And we will look at the uh, case of Argentina from 74 to 2001. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting um, uh, time period in Argentine trade policy because 
the, uh, the, the, the whole period covers two episodes of trade liberalization and one reversal, reversal to uh, uh, protection. So there was, I, I, will, I, I will show you the numbers in a few minutes, but basically there was a huge trade, trade reform by the, uh, uh, by the uh, late 70s. Then in 82 to 89, 90, there was a reversal to protection. And then there was a further trade liberalization, a further trade reform during the 90s. Um, now, uh, this, um, uh, this has some advantages, I think, that we can uh, exploit and that we try to exploit in this paper. First, there is this, this notion that if you, if you look at one episode of trade liberalization, um, you know, the, the impact that you assign to the trade reform may confound other effects that are coming from simultaneous policy reforms and unobserved uh, 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 variables in the, regression, in the regression models. And this is, I think, particularly important in Latin America because the trade reforms came as a package of a more comprehensive set of, of reforms that included, you know, the regulation of the financial sector, uh, the regulation of the private sector more generally, uh, uh, capital account opening, uh, the unionization, a bunch of things that came together with uh, the trade reform. So provided you don't control for all these things, there might be a confounding effect with the trade, uh, with the tariff, the, the trade uh, information that you have in the, in the models. Now, um, in our setting, I think that what we will do is was, we'll actually we will compare the trends in the trade reforms, that's the title of the paper, with the trends in, the, in wage inequality to see if we can add something to the uh, identification of the, uh, of the true effects of, of trade. Um, also, we are in, in a sense um, uh, throwing out a new, a new case study, let's say, adding a, a case study to the literature. So most, and this is not... This, I think, it's also a, a contribution, if you want, because most of the literature looks at the 90s, uh, especially in Latin America. This is because, of course, that, because of most of the reforms came in the 90s, but also because of that availability. Here we have a case in which we can go back in history and see and compare to, to the two different episodes of trade liberalization, the 90s and the 70s. And as I will show you, the 70s in Argentina were actually a, more, a period of much more um, active trade trade reforms, so I think we can also learn uh, something from that. Um, so this is basically a preview of the findings. We pretty much confirmed that the, uh, the, the tariff reforms have uh, reduced wages um, and that uh, tariff reforms have increased uh, wage inequality. So and pay attention to the, to the two uh, conditional clauses, that, uh, to the one conditional clause that we have there, which is the Cedric's variables clause, and I want to say something about that uh, by the end of the, of the, of the presentation. Um, so let me speed up a little bit. I, I, um, so again, this is, this, we go back to, the, uh, to uh, 1974. So we have two pieces of data in this paper. One is the, the tariff information, the trade, uh, the trade data, and then we also have the, uh, the wage uh, data. I want to spend one or two minutes in this because it wasn't easy at all to, uh, to put together this data set, so I want to uh, you know, show off a little bit. Um, now, the tariff data, um, basically the tariff data comes from uh, customs uh, uh, sources. Now, there is, it's, it's not like you go to the uh, statistical office webpage and you download the data. You know, it's not really like that. You need to... Uh, know the right the right people and and, and uh, um, 
if you if you do all that and you you are persistent enough, then you can get access uh, to the data. Now there there was an additional problem, which is that the data comes electronically. We're talking about tariff now. Uh, comes electronic, electronically since 1992, but before that, from 1974 to 1991, it comes in what is called a, a Guía del Importador, which is basically imports, it's a booklet for importers with list of items from the harmonized systems and list of uh, tariffs. And those we had to impute uh, uh, manually. So, you know, there was a pretty much a lot of work uh, in there to, to have the data ready for work. Now, I have to confess that neither me nor uh, Sebastian imputed uh, the data ourselves, uh, so I guess this, these are the advantages of uh, outsourcing. Uh, so we had you know, a bunch of people helping us with, with that. But there, there's a lot of work behind, a lot of data work behind uh, what we do in the, in the paper. Now, the wage data, similar story, the, it, it comes electronically, electronically, but you have to be more persistent to get the historical uh, uh, wage data. But we got it. Um, it the, the data in Argentina on wages, uh, the uh, microdata comes from the uh, permanent household survey, and we basically have one, sometimes two surveys per year, mostly from 74 to 2001. So that's the data, and here you have a description of what's going on. So this is the tariff reforms. And basically, you have, we have selected uh, some years, and uh, we plot the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the core of the, the, you know, the, the mass of the distribution of the tariffs, and uh, to, to give you a sense of the mean, the median, and the dispersion of the protection in Argentina. So you see in 74, for example, the tariff rate is, the average is around 100%. So this huge protection with some sectors with protections over 200%. And you can see very clearly how the protection goes down. There is a, there is a, there is a huge trade, trade liberalization going up to, um, let's say, 1982. Now, from then on, the, the average increases a little bit and dispersion also increases. So you see uh, some, somewhat a, a reversal to protection or, or at least a, a, um, a slowdown in, in the trade reforms. And then if you see the 90s, 94, 2001, you see again the, uh, the liberalization, you know, from 89, you see the, 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 the further liberalization of the 90s um, with, uh, with uh, the, the, the unilateral trade liberalization and also with uh, Mercosur, which is the regional trade agreement between um, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Brazil. Um, so th that's the, the tariff data. Here you have the matching trends that we uh, um, Pursue in the, in the paper. So the dotted line is, is the same graph as before. There you have the, uh, the, liberal, the first liberalization up to 82, then the, the, the slowdown in, in liberalization up to the 90s, and then the further liberalization of, the, of the, uh, the, the 90s. And the solid line is the trend in the uh, skill premium. So what we did here is we estimated the earnings um, equations using the household surveys, one per year. Uh, basically, uh, this is a regression of the uh, wage on you know, some household char uh, individual characteristics and also uh, uh, educational dummies mm, with three categories, uh, unskilled, semi-skilled, and skilled. And that's what you see there, and also you know, the, uh, the uh, industry um, fixed effect, etc. And what we plot there is the, the coefficient of the skilled dummy in, in these regressions. And we plot that through time. So basically, the idea, the, 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 the Conceptually, the, the, the motivation for the paper is to say, look, there is an increase in wage inequality that you can sort of 
that corresponds to the declining tariffs in the 70s. Then there is a kind of a decline in wage inequality during the 80s, which is a period in which the, there was the, this reversal to protection. And then there is a further increase in wage inequality in the 90s, which kind of matches, it is more or less matched by the, uh, the further liberalization of the, of the, of the 90s. So now, you know, the rest of the paper is to try to establish this uh, relationship econometrically, but the story, is the, the, uh, uh, the, the story of the paper is basically this figure that we have here. Now, um, let me show you some, some, of the, uh, some of our findings. Let me, um, let me begin first with a model of, in which we have um, industry premiums affected by uh, tariffs. So the regression is, is, is you know, the, the same regressions, the same earnings regressions that we ran to prepare the, the previous figure, but now we include the log of the tariffs, which is, uh, the, uh, I guess, the, uh, sec, the, the third term in there. Now, X are some characteristics of the individual. S are the, uh, the skill dummies. So here we have the tariffs without, interacted, uh, uh, without any interactions with the skill dummies. We have year effects. We have uh, survey effects. Um, and at this point, I'm interested in the alpha coefficients, which will give me an idea of how tariffs um, affect average uh, wages. Now, these are the results. Um, um, so we have uh, four models in there. Basically, all models have time and industry effects. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, um, the last model has sectoral trends. And then what we do in from going from model one to model four, in model one, we don't, we don't allow the returns to age and schooling to change in time. In model two, we allow return to schooling to change from survey to survey, but return to uh, uh, age are kept you know, constant across time. And then in model three, we expand, we allow more flexibility in both the returns to schooling and the returns to age. Um, and you know, what we see is that there is a slight um, a, a, a positive effect of tariff on wages. And th there is a, these are one-star coefficients, so the, the, the results are only significant at the 10% uh, level. But, um, you know, the, the, there is something going on. Um, now, what we do next is we, we expand this regression to include interactions between the, uh, the schooling dummies and the tariffs. So now we're thinking about a model in which the, uh, the, the industries can hire, um, can pay different wages to skilled and unskilled workers, and these premiums can be affected by trade, um, by the tariff faced by, the, by a particular industry. So that means that now we simply interact the, the S with the tau, and we are interested in the, the phi coefficients, the first uh, term in the second row of the, uh, of the equation. Alpha is, again, the, the direct effect on, on, on wages. Again, um, here we have the four models in the, in the four columns, following the same description as before. And, uh, but we have the log of the tariff, the alpha in the first line, and then the, the five the interactions with the skilled dummies in the second and, and, and third uh, rows. And pretty much what we have is, you see, the, the, the positive coefficient on the, the positive alpha uh, is still there, um, at significant at the 10% level, and then what we see is a, a very high, a very statistically significant effect on the skill premium 
in, uh, in all the models except model one. But since we, we really believe that the returns to schooling and the returns to age are changing due to the, you know, the, the, huge, the, 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 um, the huge change in the economy is going through, through these 30 years or, or, or uh, more or less, then the, um, the, um, the model is suggesting that there is an effect on the wages, right? There is effect of protection is, is um, um, good for wages. Uh, and um, there is also um, a detrimental effect for the uh, skill premium. Now, when you liberalize, you reduce the tariff, no? So what this implies is that the average wage is, is going down, the skill premium is going to go up, so the distributional effect is going from a trade liberalization is going, through, is going to uh, uh, benefit more the skilled than the unskilled. Now, a quick uh, quantification just, you know, to, to say something about the two different episodes of, uh, of liberalization of Argentina. And I have here some characteristics of the 70s and of the 90s. So the first thing is that, the, again, the, the reforms in the, in the 70s are much more pronounced than in the 90s. So the average tariff cut in the 70s is of around 70 percentage points. So for example, if we, in 74, the average tariff was around 74, um, 100%, I'm sorry, and then in, in, in 82, the average tariff is 30. So you see a huge change in, in tariffs in, in this period. Now, if you use the, uh, the elasticity that we estimated in the previous table with these changes in tariffs, you get an implied decline in the wages of unskilled, skilled, uh, semi-skilled workers, because this, you know, there, there are no significant differences among these two groups, of around 27%. There is a decline in the wages of skilled workers of 3.5%, but an increase in the skill premium of around 24%. Now, the observed increase in the skill premium during this period, remember figure one in the paper, is of more or less 100%. So that, this means that, on average, more or less, the uh, trade liberalization can explain one-fourth of the observed uh, increase in the skill premium during this period. Now, same kind of analysis for the 90s, and you see that first the liberalization is, is, is uh, less profound. It's of only 12 percentage points, going from an average of 30 to an average of 18 in 2001, more or less. Um, again, there is a, an, uh, an implied decline in the wages of unskilled workers, but the magnitudes are now much smaller. Due, you know, the magnitude of the shock is smaller, so the, the, the implied magnitude, the implied impact on wages are also smaller. And in particular, if you see the, the, the implied increase in the skill premium is of only 4% due to the trade liberalization, with an observed increase of 42%, that means that we can only explain, with the, with the trade reforms, we can only explain around 10% of the observed increase in the skill premium. So here you see, again, crudely, that the uh, investigating the 70s cannot, you know, because it is a more significant trade reform, cannot uh, something, you know, a, a new case study to the, uh, to the ones that we already have. Um, uh, and then I will, I will, I, I, I want to qualify a little bit this, but I will do that in the conclusions. Now let me, let me do very briefly a couple of um, um, more tables. Um, we want to do some sensitivity to see, you know, and, uh, w uh, that the results are pr robust to uh, the definition of the skills and also robust 
to the fact that the large, precisely, you know, one thing that I've, I've been emphasizing is the large uh, tariff cuts of the 70s. We, we don't want that to be driving our results, so we will do something about that. Then there is an issue that the quotas, you know, what we can, we can include in the regressions are tariffs. We cannot deal with quotas because we don't have the history of, uh, um, it was a hassle to get the tariff data. Imagine what, um, how complicated it is to get non-tariff information. So provided, you know, if, if you want to assume that the, 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 the quantitative restrictions are correlated with the tariffs, then there, there might be problems in the, in the results that I have shown you. So I'll try to say something about that. And then there, is, there might be a concern about endogeneity of tariffs that uh, I want to say a word about that too. Now here you have the sensitivity to the definition of, of the skills. Remember that we had three categories of skills in the previous tables. Um, unskilled, semi-skilled, and skilled. Now we, the, we pull the semi-skilled with the skills. Uh, so you have the you know, guys with, uh, with only primary education on, on, on the unskilled side and everybody else on the, on the skilled side. And pretty much the results are, are, are uh, uh, remain. Of course, the magnitudes are different because now we have different categories of, of, of workers. But again, you see similar elasticities of the log tariffs and then uh, significant effects on the skill premium with this additional definition. Again, for all our, our, our models. Now here we have some robustness checks. So the first column reproduces model three of the previous, of the, the first definition of a skills. No, so now we are back to three definition of a skills. In the second column, we estimate the model getting rid of the, sh the sharp decline in tariffs in, uh, from 74, and pretty much everything remains the same. Of course, now you know, the magnitudes are different, the interpretation of the coefficients have to be uh, qualified a little bit, but pretty much the, the, the significant effect on the skill premium remains. The same if we eliminated 70s altogether. So now we lose, the, 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 in a sense, we are losing the two, uh, uh, um, the, the, the idea of matching the two trends in liberalization, but you know, just for robustness checks, uh, we redid that using, the, let's say, the, the the, the protection of the 80s vis-a-vis -vis the liberalization of the 90s, and you see uh, similar uh, uh, conclusions. Um, the fourth column of this table tries to uh, say something about the role of quantitative uh, restrictions, and the issue here is that, you know, if you review the historical accounts of the uh, Argentine trade policy, you see that uh, 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 quotas were implemented only during the, uh, during the, uh, the 80s, not before that, or not to a large extent before that. The bulk of the protection in terms of non-tariff barriers comes in the, in the 80s. And you can sort of see that in the, in, the, in the graph of the tariff reform that I showed, because when I said a reversal of, uh, to protection, actually if you look at the tariff, it's kind of constant through the period. And the reason is that most of the reversal to protection comes from, say, quotas. So what we did there was to basically, go, now we get rid of the, of the 80s altogether, and we see if the, if, the, if the trends match in the two, exclusively for the two periods of, uh, of trade liberalization. And again, to, to a large extent, the results are, uh, pretty in term, especially in terms of the skill premium, remains uh, uh, the same. And finally, we did the, uh, the uh, we restricted the sample to the 90s, just to have a, you know, a, a a benchmark which we could, in principle, compare to other experiences or other papers that have studied Argentina or, or similar cases in Latin America. And again, now, now the, um, the, um, the results are a little bit different because we start to see significant uh, effects directly on wages, 
but also uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the skill premium is pretty much affected by the trade liberalization. So um, our results uh, survive, let's say, these uh, robustness checks to a large extent. Um, So let, let me let, um, summarize and say you know, some, some things that are, that are pending that I want to, to um, qualify now. Again, um, what, what, I think we, what we have to offer here is, I think, um, first a new case study in which we, um, we not only look at the 90s, but also at the 70s, and I think there is some value to that. Now, also we want to exploit these breaks in trade liberalization to get a, 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 um, in, 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 let's say a, a, a kind of a, a stronger identification uh, strategy, and um, so by doing that, by, com by comparing the, the different trends in, in, in trade liberalisation with the trends in, in wage inequality, we we uh, we have found two things. So first, that there is an impact on average wages. So if you protect an industry, the wages will go up, and if you liberalise, the wages will go down. There is also an, a differential effect on skilled and unskilled workers. And we have seen that if you liberalize, you will tend to favor uh, more the skilled workers than the unskilled workers. Um, now here comes a qualification, which is, you know, these are, um, these are regressions that um, these coefficients are conditional on everything else. So, if the trade liberalization has caused significant growth, for example, and, that, and this transmits or, or, or is translated to the workers in, ter in terms of higher wages, then I don't think our coefficients are actually showing this. Hmm? So, in a sense, what I'm saying is these, these are studies in which the interpretation of these coefficients, these, can, these, can, these results can um, illustrate, uh, for example, the consequences of liberalizing uh, trade in, in a model or in a situation in which you have, for instance, adjustment costs, which it's pretty much a sensible thing to do, no? Because when you liberalize, you are expecting gains from trade, but if there are adjustment costs, if it is costly for a worker to move from one industry to another, if it is costly for a worker to acquire skills to, to perform in, the, in, 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 in world markets, then, you know, you may expect some uh, um, um, negative consequences from trade. Um, now, to go from that to say that trade is not... Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, I just wanted to qualify the interpretations of the findings. And also, what I think is lacking, I think this is a, a more general problem of the literature, I think that also another thing that we are lacking here is the, uh, the impacts of uh, exports. So, I tend to think of a, a, an episode of trade liberalization not only being uh, uh, something in which you produce a tariff, but also in which you promote exports. And to some extent, I don't feel uh, this is captured in this sort of analysis. So in, in other words, general equilibrium effects of trade liberalization are, should be uh, put on the other column when interpreting the, 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 uh, the, these uh, coefficients. And um, um, well, I think that's pretty much, you know, we can, we can have more discussion if you want. Um. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and our discussant um, is Maurice Cooper. Um, 
First of all, I want to thank the organizers for inviting me to this great conference and to give me the opportunity to, to discuss this paper, which I have enjoyed reading over the past few days. Um, because of time limitations, I won't spend that much time going over the results, which uh, I think Guido um, articulated very precisely. Uh, let me just say that uh, it is very meritorious to um, uh, put the investment to build such a, a data set which actually spans three decades of long-run trends on tariffs and wages. And uh, in doing so, they uh, find a couple of uh, results. Uh, the main ones are that uh, protectionism is associated with higher wages uh, across the board in Argentina and also that uh, protectionism is associated with uh, lower uh, average wage, uh, nominal wage skill premium. Um, so in terms of documenting these facts, the paper is very uh, detailed and uh, meticulous. Um, and I think uh, to, to go a little bit beyond that, it would be interesting to ask why it is the case that uh, these uh, trends are, or patterns are uncovered. Um, the first uh, thing that, in fact, Guido was uh, uh, driving at in, uh, in his uh, latter remarks, uh, if we think in terms of trade models, uh, Heckscher Lin would predict that with uh, trade liberalization, reduction in tariffs, you should have uh, reallocation um, of labor across sectors in such a way that uh, you should observe the opposite of what they found. And the, the underpinning assumption of Heckscher Lean and, and the main result in terms of relative wages uh, installed per Samuelson is that uh, labor reallocation is frictionless. So if we don't find that, uh, we probably have to think in terms of some a model in which uh, there is factor specificity or some friction to labor reallocation, and that would take us to a Ricardo Viner type of model, um, which suggests that there is some restriction in Argentina to the reallocation of labor. Uh, another possibility is to think in terms of technology upgrades, that with further exposure to foreign competition, Argentinian uh, firms uh, were, had more incentives to upgrade their technology. And uh, in fact, the, there is a suggestion since the labor share fell from 45% to 30% that capital intensity increased, uh, but also it might be the case that uh, there was a skill bias technology adoption as a response to uh, more exposure to foreign competition and that this is um, underlying uh, the patterns uncovered by uh, Guido uh, and, and Sebastian. And the, the reason why I think it's important to, to ask these questions is that the policy implications are very different depending on which one is the source of uh, the changes in the skilled premium that were found. In the first case, uh, you would say, well, for benefits of trade liberalization, 
to be realized, you need more flexible labor markets. In the second case, you might think that there is some uh, more structural source of mismatch and that you require some way to facilitate uh, for unskilled workers to acquire skills that are demanded in the new trade regime. Um, so uh, let me step back a little bit and try to uh, think why do we care about the impact of trade on inequality and there are a couple of reasons which are not mutually exclusive. One would be fairness and the other one might have to do with the political economy that if there is a sharp increase in inequality upon trade liberalization, you might observe a retrenchment to protectionism. Um, so in this sense, I think it's interesting to think in terms of overall inequality rather than just wage inequality. And uh, a couple of things, uh, actually I was talking about the first issue with uh, Guido yesterday, is that it might be that the nominal wage inequality is not uh, precisely linked to real wage inequality, which is what we care about, if it happens to be the case that the consumption baskets of skilled and unskilled are different. So for example, if the unskilled have consumption baskets that uh, have a higher proportion of tradables, then it might be that this offsets what is happening in terms of the nominal wage. And uh, Guido told me that he has done some research on this in Argentina, and that is apparently the case. The other issue is that uh, we should think about unemployment and perhaps uh, also informal employment, and uh, that the higher uh, relative unskilled wages associated with protectionism might come at the cost of uh, high unemployment or high informality. So one thing about uh, protection uh, in, in terms of trade and employment protection in general is that it's wonderful for those who have jobs, but it's not very good news for the jobless. So in terms of capturing overall inequality, it might be that under protectionism, uh, there are more people unemployed or in the, in the informal sector, and that looking at inequality among the employed doesn't necessarily give us a good picture, which is nominal wage inequality, doesn't give us a good picture about overall inequality, which is probably what we uh, care most about. Um, a couple of data issues I'll just uh, mention quickly. Uh, it is true that trade liberalization lowers the average tariff, which uh, they claim in the paper is in some sense exogenous, but even if the exposed tariff is uniform and it's exogenously imposed by external forces, uh, if the initial tariff distribution was in some sense endogenous, as has been documented, for example, for Mexico and, and Colombia, uh, then uh, the change in protection across sectors is not exogenous. So the, the exposed tariff after liberalization is exogenous, but not the change in that tariff. And the other 
uh, it's not a comment, it's rather a question. It's about the representativeness of the household survey, which has about a thousand observations per wave, and um, it would be nice to have a more detailed description of the sampling methodology. Um, in terms of the econometric specification, uh, I think given that we have uh, two episodes of trade liberalization and one in which uh, protectionism apparently increases, so there is erection of trade barriers, it would be interesting to see whether uh, there is some asymmetry. So the, paper, the econometric specification assumes that there is symmetry in terms of the impact of liberalization and of the impact of uh, uh, erection of uh, protective barriers. And given that uh, uh, one of the uh, advantages of the paper is having this uh, time variation, I think it would be nice to uh, perhaps ex exploit it in this way. Another issue is the constant uh, tariff elasticity of wages. So in the uh, presentation, we saw that the right-hand side variable was the log of the tariff. And if this is the case, then that would imply that the effect of the average tariff of a fall in the tariff from 50% to 25% is exactly the same as a fall from 5% to 2.5%. However, when Guido was discussing the quantification, the discussion was as though the right-hand side variable was not the log of tariffs, but the tariff itself. So I wonder whether this might be a typo, but I think imposing this constant elasticity uh, might be uh, too restrictive, and I would suggest trying on the right-hand side variable the tariff level itself rather than the log of the tariff, because then you would get different uh, effects depending on the initial level of the tariff. Um, and then I had an, another comment about the, whether the skill premium is tied to specific sectors and whether um, it might be interesting to interact industry indicator uh, with the schooling, uh, as is done, for example, in the paper by Atanasio, Goldberg, and Pavnik, and uh, where they actually do exploit a lot more the sectoral uh, variation, which in this paper is controlled for, but is never actually used to try to learn about the um, sources of uh, skill premium changes. Uh, I also had a comment about using nominal tariffs versus effective protection rates. So in, in particular, if uh, input tariffs are high relative to final good tariffs, uh, then the nominal tariff will overstate protection. And in sectors which are intensive in imported inputs, this might actually uh, imply that uh, we are uh, having a bias uh, measure of the level of protection in sectors which might be uh, more technologically advanced because they are using imported inputs. So uh, they have done a very nice correction of the Mercosur effect on the actual level of protection. I would suggest uh, also uh, looking at the effective protection rate 
rather than the nominal tariff and see whether the effects might change. In my experience uh, uh, working with the tariff data, it, it makes a difference sometimes whether you use the effective as opposed to the nominal tariff. So in terms of uh, policy implications, uh, some people uh, may make the statement that trade can affect income inequality and poverty. And by looking at the results presented here, they might conclude that uh, one effect of trade liberalization is to uh, induce more inequality. However, uh, when you start asking why we observe the patterns which are documented, uh, you realize that it's not necessarily trade liberalization per se that is causing the inequality, but rather it's the fact that you have uh, rigid labor markets or that there, uh, in which case you have institutional impediments to reallocation or that you might have something more structural like mismatch in uh, skills, which you may have to tackle by looking at the education sector or incentives for skill acquisition, uh, training programs, and so forth. Uh, so some, some people might try to use this type of result to suggest that there is an excess of market reform and that we should revert to uh, more protectionist regimes, but I would say it's not an excess, but rather perhaps uh, not enough uh, market reform. And uh, in particular, uh, what, what you would say is that there might be some lessons in terms of sequencing. That before you engage into a massive trade liberalization program, to make it politically sustainable and to see the welfare gains of such program, you may uh, consider first uh, making your labor market flexible. Um, otherwise, you will be in the Ricardo Viner world rather than the a Hexerolin uh, world. So to finish, uh, let me say this uh, study is an important contribution to enhance our understanding of the consequences of trade liberalization when labor market frictions preclude factor reallocation, where these frictions might be, as I said, either institutional because of uh, distortive labor market institutions or they might be ma more structural because of uh, mismatch in skills and changes in the demand of the industry for skills. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's an important piece and that uh, future work is needed uh, on understanding the channels which make the wage skill premium a function of sectoral tariffs because uh, without understanding these channels, we cannot draw policy implications. Thanks. That was great. That was really great. Um, let's open it up for questions, um, including Guido. If you have any questions, you can go back and forth. We have a whole bunch. Let's let's see what people have to say. Tian, yeah. Uh, two two questions. One, uh, since you are focusing exclusively on uh, tariff changes as a measure of uh, the uh, trade policy, uh, and of course, other than the quantitative restrictions when you uh, talked about in the 80s, most of the paper is on tariffs. But 
if you were to think in terms of the effect on factor prices, in this case, uh, unskilled and skilled wages and so on, you, there is an intermediate step, that is to say, where, whether the liberalization at the border in terms of tariffs is passed through to, uh, and if so, to what extent, to the producers, uh, uh, producers' prices, both for their outputs and for uh, inputs. And so it's not very clear to me that uh, uh, automatically any uh, tariff liberalization uh, necessarily uh, implies uh, domestic uh, price liberalization. And so you have to, without thinking through what are the various intermediate stages, it becomes very difficult to interpret what's going on. The other is, the second point is minor one, uh, to or add to Maurice's excellent discussion. If you had a three-factor model, capital, skilled labor, and unskilled labor, depending upon the elasticity of substitution between capital and skilled labor and unskilled labor, you can turn around, you can make the results go, uh, the impact of uh, tariff changes go uh, whichever way you want by choosing the elasticity of substitution appropriately. And again, this uh, tells you that uh, going from uh, the tariff liberalization to factor prices, the intermediate stage is also the model. And what model you use can uh, uh, lead to different conclusions. Um, let's, take, let's take two or three questions. Um, Penny, your hand up. So the first one is I'm a little puzzled by your robustness analysis uh, because I don't think it helps your, your case. So the, the big selling point of the paper is that you have this time series that you can exploit and multiple liberalization episodes. And then your robustness analysis, you throw out the major one. And, uh, and very apologetically, you say, we know the tariff changes were very large, therefore let's throw them out and see what happens. Uh, but but this is exactly what's great about the paper, that you have these very big tariff changes. So, I, I mean, I don't think the point of the robustness analysis is to kill the strength of the paper. And then, but then you throw them out, and then the results be become even stronger, which in some sense undermines you. So I'm, I'm not sure why you want to do this. Uh, so that's one. Uh, the second one is more of a conceptual nature. And that, so I understand your first regression, um, where you regress wages on tariffs. And you show that sectors that had higher tariff reductions experience uh, uh, lower uh, or have lower wages. Uh, but I don't, I have a, a hard time following what you're doing in the second one, or rather how to interpret it. Um, because once you start talking about the skill premium, the general equilibrium effects are going to be, become important. And in particular, when I look at your graph at the beginning of the paper, which tells the story, it seems to me if I look from 70 to 82, this is Again, I will apologize to Tien, but in the two-by-two two, uh, model, this is the perfect Hexerolin story. So my understanding is Argentina is actually abundant in skilled labor relative to its trading partners. It opens up to trade, and the skilled premium goes up. So this is the best evidence for Hexerolin you can find. And so this is one case where I would think you don't want to exploit the cross-sectional dimension, but you want to exploit the time series dimension. And see if the skill premium can be explained by the fact that you reduce the average tariff. But instead, you somehow try to link it to the cross-sectional variation, and I just have, I have a very hard time interpreting what the general equilibrium mechanism uh, going on there is. Um, and also, uh, you know, this is also related to Maurice's point. Skill in your 
paper, from what I understand, is defined based on educational categories, right? So you, in, you do interact education and tariffs, but you're also controlling these regressions for skill premium. And again, you can only explain one-fourth of the increase in the skill premium, which leaves the question open what explains the other three-quarters of the increase. And it's possible that the other three quarters are also explained by trade, by the general equilibrium effect. And so it would be nice to try to look at that because you do have the time series, which is quite unique in this line of work. Hi. Um, it was actually a similar point to Penny. Um, you should, if you believe in the hatch rolling model, there should be equalization of uh, relative um, skill premiums across sectors. So uh, this is, you, so I don't know what you're actually capturing when you do industry-specific um, effects of uh, tariffs on the relative premiums, because it should be the same. So you might be capturing um, the effect of tariffs on unobserved ability um, across different types of skills in each industry. Um, and also, if you have generated liberal effect, the interactions um, of uh, the schooling dummies uh, with the tariffs uh, are a bit hard to understand because uh, it should be the same across the economy. On the, on the other side, uh, another possible explanation for uh, the rise in inequality could be the tariffs of inputs decline as well as tariffs of outputs. So. Um, I, I think this has happened in Brazil when you have reduction in, in, in the goods, in tariffs for goods, the goods that are used of, as inputs to other sectors. The domestic prices also decline, and so they, they could have access to better technology, and this might be complementary to skill, and this might explain a rise in demand for skill and then a rise in returns to education. I think uh, uh, provides some really interesting uh, facts and, uh, and things. Uh, along the lines that, uh, that I've been saying, I think the, the, the few missing uh, facts that uh, I think would uh, make the paper much stronger uh, are uh, something that uh, Maurice was referring to is the, the extent of mobility across sectors. I think, I think in principle you have this in your data and documenting what happens simultaneously to wages and, 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 uh, and, and to mobility and how labor fl uh, flows move or don't move, I think it would be extremely I informative. And the second thing, which is uh, something that Nairci has done lots of work on and other people as well, is, it is true across lots of Latin American countries. When we talked about the return to skills, you need to be precise of what skills are. And, uh, you know, the, if you think of the three groups, uh, uh, you know, primary education, secondary education, and college education in, in Latin America, there have been dramatic changes both in the supplies of these skills, but also in the, in the relative prices. And uh, if you ask me what happened during the 90s, which is a period that I know a little better in many countries in Latin America, is that, that there is a decrease in the return to what you call semi-skill. But a massive increase in the return to uh, college education. And, and, and I think you need to map this all, keep track of all these things. So of course, uh, one would love to know the elasticity substitution between capital and the two types of skills. But if you get some estimates of that, you can then uh, untangle them. Well, <laughs> you have like three pages of.
I'm not sure I will be able, I, I remember what I thought along the way, but anyway. Um, so thanks, thanks for all the uh, uh, comments, especially Maurice. Um, your, your comments were uh, wonderful and um, I appreciate it. Uh, let me say some, you know, some things at random. Um, um, so one, one um, in, during my qualifications in, the, in my conclusions, I, I, I tried to specifically say that I don't think we are capturing any sort of general equilibrium effects in this model and that in, in, this esti in, 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 the, uh, in the estimation. And this includes not only uh, you know, any growth effect, but also uh, any uh, um, impact on real wages. So this is, this is a story about protection of wages in a particular industry, and I don't think we have a story uh, of what will happen in, in terms of general equilibrium effects within the economy. This coming through uh, uh, um, uh, prices or growth or anything else attached to uh, trade. Uh, and I, 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 I strongly think that this is some, this, uh, this is, there are missing things here in the literature. So we need to, um, um, I would like to see more of uh, general equilibrium effects of trade. Now that said, I think that um, in my, in my um, previous work, what we have found in terms of, what I have found in terms of the comparison of the wage effects vis-a-vis -vis the consumption effects is that the, 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 the impacts of trade through the income channel are much, much larger than the, the impacts of trade through the consumption basket. If you want to think about this theoretically very briefly, think about the change of a, in a price will have an effect on your real income that will be given by the budget share. That, you know, the, the budget, the share of your, of your expenditure that you allocate to a given good. And that can be, that is uh, between zero and one, say. Now, in the, let's, since, since the uh, Stolper-Samuelson model um, was mentioned several times in the discussion, in the Stolper-Samuelson model, you can have the magnification effects in which the factor that is ben benefited by the reform will have an effect which is with an elasticity more than one. So conceptually, that's, that's, I, I tend to think that that's one reason why the, the, the effects on, on income will be uh, higher than the effects on consumption. On the other hand, I do believe that the, the, the role of unemployment is an important one. I think that the, again, as, as much as the general equilibrium effects are missing in most of these, in, in many of these papers, the unemployment effects are also uh, uh, missing. I'm, I know Penny has uh, done something on that line, and I think more should be uh, done, especially because now when you include unemployment, you have sort of like a discrete change in income. So what I said before is even stronger. No? You go from a guy who has not really zero, but let's say zero income to a positive income, so the, the change in welfare for that guy is a, a different order of magnitude than a, that someone that receives a, a, a only an increasing wage, something like that. Uh, so again, um, I'm not going to... Um, uh, okay, let, leave it at, at, at that. Now on the, on the endogeneity, I forgot to say, I had it in my slide and in my mind, but it, it, it slipped off during the presentation. I don't think we are, so the argument that we have here is first, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure in which, which order to put the, uh, the answer, but let's say since, since we have, a, a, and this came out in the, in the panel before, since we have hi historical data spanning 30 years, it's very difficult to find a good instrument 
especially in the in 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 in, in the in the in the 70s, no? when we hardly have the data on Harif and it was hard enough to get that, so imagine finding an instrument for that. So that, that's like a, the, the lame excuse. Now the, the, um, the, the, the better answer for that is, look, we have here a time series. So if, I think that the endogeneity issue is unavoidable in a cross-section because you cannot get away with a political model, a, 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 um, political economy models, unionization models, things like that. Now in a cross-section, in, in, in a time series like this, with the two breaks in reforms, the, um, with, the, with the industry effects, the sectoral trends, the time-varying returns to age, uh, the time-varying return to schooling, then what we are saying is that m we hope that most of these effects are captured by the regression, and uh, that then the only things that leave um, uh, uh, that, that are unaccounted for in the model are the, the overall trends in the world towards trade liberalization, which, again, you know, we can claim that it is a little bit exogenous and, um, and, um, and the initial level of the tariff. So we can do a, a, some experimentation on, on, on that, but I think it's not going to be um, terrible at the end of the day in terms of our uh, analysis. Now, there was, a, there was a comment on, on, on try to exploit the, uh, the uh, asymmetric effects of trade uh, reforms on, on uh, the skill premium or on wages. And on the other hand, we have, so this came from Reese, and on the other hand, we had Penny saying, don't do that because you're spoiling your, your strategy. And, you know, I think that this, is a, a, this reveals the, the feeling that we as authors had when we were preparing the robustness checks because we have the, the identification strategy and all the figure and, and the breaking trends, and we were very excited with the data and the trends in here with the, with the increases in wage inequality in the 70s and the 90s and the reversal in the 80s. Um, but then we felt that we had to sort of do some, some you, know, you know, given that you have that chunk of reform in the 70s, one obvious question to me was, well, I mean, come on, maybe that's what's driving all the results. So I... I no, well, I know, but, but you have to, I mean, I think you will uh, understand that if we don't do that, we will get the, the, the reverse question. So, I <laughs> so the, main, the main results in the paper are in table two, let's say, that is table four, when you get to that. Anyway, um, there is always a, there is always a, uh, I always have problems with this, you know, when, when, I, when I write a paper, I always have problems laying out a good strategy for the paper. So I welcome the, uh, any idea to, to, uh, uh, to do a better, you know, to do justice to, to our, what we do. And I feel that you're right. Eh? I mean, I feel like when, I, when, when, I, when, when we were doing the tables, when I was preparing the presentation, I said, hmm, this is kind of a killer. So um, let's see. Um, I think we, um, well, I have many other things on, on let me let me say one 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 thing. Um, I think I, I don't think it, it, in my mind I, I don't think we impose a model on on on, on the data. Uh, I, I tend to think maybe I'm wrong, but I tend to think the, in the other way around. So we let so we interacted the tariff with the skill dummies, and and then we we you know we saw what came out of the regressions, and we saw all those three stars in the in the in the table. Uh, um, now I think that there's something about the model that is going on in the economy. Now, of course, I can assume Stolper Samuelson and not do that, but I'm not sure that's the correct way of doing, uh, of, of thinking about this. On that said, there are things about the pass-through, there are things about the cross-validation of the, of, the, of the mobility of, of, of the skills, 
that we could, we, we could explore and we will certainly do um, that as much as we can since, again, we have the data. So, um, and, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if I forgot about... There was something on complementary policy sequencing, but I think we can talk about that over coffee. I don't want to get uh, any more time from the next uh, speaker. Thank you all for, your, for listening and uh, uh, all the comments. Thanks. Um, well, thank you very much. We're going to move on to our next paper now. Um, the title of the paper is Trade Policy, Child Labor, and Schooling, Evidence from Indian Districts. Um, it is being presented by Eric Edmonds, who has a bunch of co-authors who you can introduce, um, and Orazio is going to be our discussant. Thank you. Great. So this um, is work that's joint with Nina Pauchnik and um, Petya Topolova, and I know um, Nina especially regrets not being able to be here. Um, personally, I think that this kind of combination of academic papers pooled with panel discussions is sort of a, a great way um, uh, to get a variety of different experiences on a particular topic, and, and I certainly like to see more of that kind of organization in, in academic discussions, and so I'm happy to be able to be a part of this. Um, so there is, uh, as most of you in this room know, a large literature now looking at kind of the short and medium-run consequences of trade liberalization. Uh, one might call this a literature on adjustment costs, one might not, uh, and the paper I'm going to present today is solidly in that literature, and we're um, particularly interested in the question of whether or not these short and, and medium-run adjustment costs could have long-term consequences through how they impact the allocation of child time. Um, our empirical strategy will be uh, in many ways uh, analogous to, to what, um, what Guido was doing, whereas Guido was looking, uh, I think implicitly assuming a certain amount of um, immobility of labor across industries. Here we're going to take advantage of a, a peculiarity of India, which is incredibly low geographic mobility. Uh, and in particular, we'll look at how heterogeneity in exposure to India's 1991 tariff reforms impacts the allocation of child time. The, the basis for identification will come from um, differences uh, across districts in India, which in U.S. context is kind of like counties. Um, in the industrial composition of employment in those districts prior to liberalization, and, and we'll see that um, because of differences in this uh, industrial composition, they're exposed differently to a national tariff reform, and we'll correlate that with changes in the activities of children. Um, it's important, though, to realize that when I'm using this within country difference in industrial composition prior to employment, that that comparison um, at any one point in time uh, ignores underlying aggregate trends. So um, much like Guido, I also uh, am going to have in the background aggregate trends going on, which could be driven in part by these tariff liberalizations. And the variation I'm capturing from identification isn't coming off of those aggregate trends. So uh, the reason why this is important is um, what we'll find is that over the 1980s and 1990s in India, there are incredible declines in child labor, incredible increases in child schooling. Okay. Um, communities that were heavily protected um, prior to liberalization and therefore in India's 91 liberalizations experiences a large change in um, uh, the protection that the industries that their workers were employed in um, uh, experience will um, not experience as large of a decline in child labor and increase in schooling as districts that um, experienced effectively no change in their protection. 
Okay? So the magnitudes of the coefficients that um, we'll be seeing won't be large enough to overwhelm these incredibly large underlying national trends of declining child labor and increasing schooling. Um, but um, what it will look like is that uh, communities that were heavily protected before, therefore communities that experienced large um, effective declines in tariffs um, with India's reforms, uh, experience everything else equal, um, smaller declines in um, child labor, lar uh, smaller increases in schooling. Okay? Um, and why? That's, of course, the, the question that I think for us is the most interesting one. Um, and what it looks like is it looks like that these communities that were uh, heavily protected and therefore experienced large tariff declines um, uh, also fail to experience the declines or don't experience as large of a reduction in poverty as is ongoing in the rest of India. Um, and that children seem to be withdrawing from school and doing some more work um, not to sort of partly help deal with this um, uh, failure to, to decrease poverty as much as the rest of India. Um, and in particular, it doesn't look like kids are working more uh, to get more economic contribution, to bring more income directly into the household through their labor, but rather what they're doing is um, their economic contribution to the household is through the avoidance of school fees, that they're, they're withdrawing from school relatively to the national trend, we have to remember that, um, and uh, are thereby saving the family some income through, um, through avoiding these schooling costs. And we'll see some indirect data on, on that uh, in just a few minutes. Okay, so I want to briefly describe the 91 trade reform, our data, show you our results, um, and then go into a bit more of a theoretical discussion um, about how we, uh, how we are interpreting them. Okay. This is the large reform that, that's underlying our paper. Um, India uh, undertook a process of dramatic tariff reduction in the 1990s. Um, the largest, this is a plot of nominal tariffs on traded goods between 1987 and, and 2001, the endpoint of our data. So they go from um, an average tariff on traded goods of 89% in 87 to 31% um, by 2001. So a really dramatic reduction in the level of tariffs. Um, uh, the biggest drop uh, that you see there is precipitated um, immediately after a, a structural adjustment package um, that went into place in India starting in August of 91. What's important for our purposes, though, are not these average tariff changes, but the change in the structure of production. Okay? That is that um, because of the, the exogenous nature of India's uh, tariff change, which, um, as I mentioned, came a part of a, a structural adjustment package, um, the changes in tariffs that any particular industry experiences um, were fairly, uh, or I should say the tariff level in 1997, 10 years after uh, the start of our data, uh, is fairly independent of the tariff level in 1987. Okay? So that political economy concerns um, about the endogeneity of tariff, of tariff um, formation, uh, which clearly affect the tariff levels in 1987, uh, aren't reflected in the tariff levels we see in 97, because these reforms both changed the, the level of protection on average and the structure of protection. Now, why this is important from this paper's perspective is that what it means is that if I'm a parent in 1987 and I'm trying to figure out how much schooling do I give my child, how much, um, or you know, do I have my child work instead, uh, that decision is unlikely to anticipate these tariff changes. Because if I were, say, conscious of the political economy process that leads to tariff um, tariff formation, uh, I, I wouldn't expect the, you know, the, these industries that were able to get a really high level of protection to, um, to suddenly uh, experience the large changes that they're seeing. Okay? 
Um, and whenever we want to try to relate trade policy changes to something that's happening on, um, on an individual level, we need to be really careful to um, show that there is actually a first stage, that these tariff um, policy changes translate then into, into growth in trade or, or something that we expect to have an individual level impact. Um, Petya Topolova has done a very careful analysis correlating industry um, level changes in tariff protection with industry level changes in um, trade. Behind this picture here is just sort of an aggregate picture that kind of, you know, is suggestive of what she found much more carefully, which is that starting um, with, uh, with these um, uh, 1991 period, there is uh, in India over the 90s a, a large growth both in exports and in imports. And what's important to realize is that our identification strategy is really going to focus on this import side, where, whereby um, you know, there's changes in the, the price at which uh, uh, foreign goods are entering into the Indian market. So that we're really looking at just one aspect of the overall reform package. And, and this growth in trade overall could have a really large role in these large aggregate declines in um, uh, child labor increases in schooling that we're just not going to capture with our empirical strategy. So let's get into more detail about our empirical strategy. Um, this is all based on work that, um, that our co-author Petya has done um, in, in a number of other papers, uh, which is in India uh, there are roughly 450 districts Prior to liberalization, they differed in their industrial composition of employment. What we construct is what we would call a um, district tariff. Now, tariffs aren't set at the district level, they're set at the national level, of course. So what a district tariff is, is it's the pre-liberalization employment-weighted tariff for the district. Okay, so we look at the industrial composition in 1991, uh, we find out, all right, um, how much employment are there in each of these industries in this district in 1991, and then we just take the tariff level, which will vary over time, uh, and weight it up based on those 1991 um, employment weights. We don't allow the weights to change over time. Okay? It's only the tariff that varies by industry that we're allowing to change over time. What that means is that the right way to think about our empirical work is that we're trying to construct the counterfactual of, um, since our base period is actually 1987 and not 91, um, the counterfactual is what would happen to child labor and schooling in 1987 if the only thing that we allowed to change was the, um, rate, uh, the rate of tariff protection on um, particular industries. Okay? So that's the kind of counterfactual that we're trying to work for. Our data comes from India's national sample survey. Uh, in the US, uh, it's analogous to the, say, the consumer expenditure survey with um, a bit more in the way of uh, labor modules, which we'll make use of. Uh, we'll focus primarily on the 43rd round, which was collected in 87-88, and the 55th round, which was collected in 99 and 2000. Um, it, it's a large sample. We'll have about 50,000 kids, 10 to 14 per round. Um, we focus on 10 to 14 because uh, 10 is the, the start of the employment module and we start finding out what kids are doing um, work-wise. Uh, we end at 14 um, uh, because that's when most discussions of child labor um, end. Uh, suddenly at 14, at 14 you're very concerned about having a kid work, at 15 you're very concerned about youth unemployment. Um, so we'll focus just on, on 10 to 14 year olds uh, here. Um, there's a big disadvantage of the NSS though, which is that there are questionnaire changes outside of the labor module um, that are quite important. And what that means is that we're very limited in our ability to, to use this data to provide a lot of structure on the problem. Instead, our empirical strategy will have to be um, to, to draw a lot of inferences um, uh, from the changes in labor supply that we actually can observe in a comparable way over time. Okay? So, uh, what are our outcome variables? We'll start describe them um, by looking at those outcome variables. 
Um, so what we've plotted here is um, from the four rounds of the NSS that we have, starting in 1983 going through to 2000, um, we've plotted the uh, fraction of kids 10 to 14 who are attending school. This is asked in a um, comparable way, and actually an identical question off the household roster in all four rounds of the survey. The question just says, is your child currently attending school? Uh, and what you can see uh, in looking at the numbers is just the incredible increase in schooling that occurs in, in India over this time period, with less than half the kids 10 to 14 in school in rural areas in 93 to nearly three quarters by 2000. Uh, this large increase in schooling is not something that's particular um, to the NSS. Uh, it, it's been confirmed in a number of other, albeit smaller scale surveys as well. Uh, the other variable we'll look at in addition to school attendance will be um, whether or not the child is working, while what is work, work can mean any number of things. The NSS allows us to kind of group work into market work, which are things like wage work, work on the family farm, family business, begging, that sort of thing. Uh, and domestic work, which is work around the household, helping in, in chores and domestic duties. We'll principally focus on a work measure, um, a variable that is, we call work only, which is that the child is working in one of these activities, um, as their principal usual activity in not simultaneously attending school. Okay? The questions on schooling and work are in different modules of the survey, so they're collected independently, so we can have kids who work but who, um, who do not attend school. And that'll be the kids who are in this work-only category that we'll focus on. And you can see that that's declined quite dramatically too, going from 36% in 83 to 14% in 2000. Okay, our empirical methodology. We'll correlate these indicators for whether or not a child's working or, or attending school with our district-level tariff measure, where we want to control for underlying age-gender composition differences um, in the population, which uh, we might be concerned about. Uh, we'll also control for things like various household characteristics, such as socioeconomic status, um, uh, religion, ethnicity, caste, um, how, education of the household head, literacy of the household head, the head's gender, the head's age. Um, those controls are, are not correlated with our district tariff measures, so their exclusion or inclusion is, is trivial. Um, does get our standard errors down a bit, though. Um, we'll also include two things that are really important for interpretation. One is a district effect. The district effect controls for time invariant district characteristics. So, for example, if you thought, um, boy, uh, that district tariff variation that, you, you, that I explained to you um, is going to differ across districts based on their pre-existing um, pre-liberalization industrial composition. So maybe you know, districts with some type of industry will tend just to have lousier schools around them as well. Just by coincidence, that would then be associated with your, your district tariff measure. And that's right. And to the extent that that's time invariant, um, our district fixed effect captures those kinds of concerns. Um, in that year effect that we mentioned before is really important for interpreting our results because it means that aggregate changes in the Indian economy, which might very well owe to these tariff liberalizations, we're not going to be identifying off of. We're not going to be capturing. Okay? Um, so what is it that we're most concerned about before, uh, with this empirical specification before we return to the data? Well, there are two classes of concerns. One class of concern concerns the, uh, the endogeneity of tariffs. Right? Part of our identification comes from changes in the industry tariff. They are, as we mentioned, externally imposed as a part of a structural adjustment package. So the use of political process, um, I think, is somewhat mitigated. Uh, Petia has done some work trying to see whether or not industry tariff changes over time are correlated with things like productivity, skill intensity, child intensity. Um, they don't appear to be. That said, um, for our purposes, given the inclusion of your effects, our real 
identification is coming off of this difference um, prior to liberalization in the industrial composition of, of, of the employed population. And so there what we're concerned about is time-varying district characteristics that happen to be correlated with that. So for example, one of the things that will go into your tariff exposure is the um, size of your uh, um, population in the non-traded sector. And we know kids are much more likely to be engaged in non-traded sector employment. So we might think then um, that your industrial composition of, um, that your, your tariff exposure coming through your industrial composition of employment will be correlated with the size of your non-traded sector, which will be correlated with the amount that kids work, and maybe the amount kids work at any given point in time will be correlated with subsequent time trends, right? That would generate a bias in our empirical results. So we address that in a few ways. One is we ask, well, do post-reform changes in tariffs um, predict pre-reform levels of child labor and schooling? They don't. Um, we also can try to control for time-varying district characteristics in a few ways. Namely, we, we look at, we use baseline industrial um, composition at a more aggregate level than the tariff and allow the year effect to vary based on the uh, composition of that employment. We allow the year effect to vary based on the, the literacy of your district population at baseline, um, and also the uh, ethnicity, uh, social status uh, uh, of your district population at baseline, to kind of control really flexibly for a lot of different time-varying characteristics. Um, the other thing we do uh, is that we, um, since our special concern is on the, the size of the non-traded sector and maybe time trends correlated with the size of the non-traded sector, we can instrument for your tariff exposure with a analogous tariff instrument that's created just on um, the amount of employment in traded sectors. Okay? So the instrument will clearly be correlated with your district's overall tariff exposure because um, your district's overall tariff exposure depends in part on traded employment. Um, but this traded tariff that we'll use as an instrument won't be mechanically related to the size of the, um, the non-traded sector. Okay. Um, first set of results to show you are just our basic results um, from uh, simple least squares regression um, without uh, instruments, without these district times trends, just to really emphasize the size of these year effects that we're working against. Everything else equal, um, schooling in rural India, uh, the probability a child 10 to 14 is enrolled in school increases by 17 uh, percentage points um, between 87 and 2000. The probability a child works without attending school declines by 10 percentage points. Okay, so really large underlying aggregate trends. Here we have our, um, our, our basic IV results, which also uh, include the initial district uh, characteristic time survey round controls that we mentioned to control for time varying factors that might happen to be correlated with your baseline industrial composition. And what we see are, are that, in fact, tariff declines, so a tariff decline is a negative number, um, is associated with um, everything else being equal, uh, a diminished schooling uh, and more kids uh, working without attending school. Now, these coefficients are not large enough to overwhelm the year effects in anything but the most extreme districts that we observe. In particular, the average tariff decline that we observe is a 5.5 percentage point decline in tariffs between 1987 and 2000. That's the average. Um, at that average, then, um, you would be, uh, with the year effects that we, we just showed you, um, you would be experiencing a, a 15 percentage point increase 
in schooling um, if you experienced in your district if you had the average tariff decline. Um, now, uh, compare that to what would happen if you had no tariff decline, there you would experience a 17 percentage point increase in schooling attendance rates. Okay? So the, at the mean, the size of the effect um, that we're observing is to reduce the increase in schooling by just two percentage points. Okay? So fairly small. All right. Some additional robustness notes on, on this basic specification. Um, we, can ex you can, we can use the data that we have um, from 1983 and compute pre-reform trends in our dependent variables um, and allow the, the time, um, the post-reform uh, time trend to vary with these pre-reform trends. Um, if we do that, uh, that has no effect on our, our estimated impacts of, of tariff changes. Um, we can look at whether or not there are changes in schooling infrastructure that are um, correlated with, uh, with uh, changes in district tariffs, and we don't see any evidence of that. If anything, the, the signs of the coefficients tend to go the other direction, which is that relative to the national trend, pupil-teacher ratios um, seem to be going down in, in areas that experience um, larger tariff declines. So that if anything, you think schooling was getting maybe a little bit better. Now, that decline is probably mechanical because they're not experiencing the same increases in, in school attendance the rest of, um, that the rest of India's experience. Um, we are focusing at the district level. Uh, the reason why we focus at the district level is because there, there's a, a high degree of immobility in India at the district level. Um, if we were to use a more aggregate number, we do see slightly larger results, um, but uh, the signs are, are all the same, and they're certainly within confidence intervals. Um, and then the other kind of caveat is that though the data doesn't suggest any big changes in the population mix of these districts, um, one of the things that could be underlying all this is let's say that if you were heavily protected, you send out all your really good at schooling kids and you bring in kids that are really bad at schooling so that there's a change in the mix of that population that's just unobservable. We can't separate that explanation out. That could be underlying our results. We don't anecdotally, because we observe in the data whether or not people are moving, we don't see large reports of people moving. Mobility is reported to be very low, so we don't think that that's what's underlying our results, but it's impossible to exclude that. So do these schooling attendance child labor changes matter over the long term? Well, to look at this, what we've done is we've used the, the 1991 and the 2001 censuses. We replicate our exact same empirical approach that we've been using, um, but only now we'll look at uh, literacy and uh, primary school completion. And the reason why this, uh, and we can look at it separately by age, and this is quite nice because this actually allows us to have a counterfactual test, which is if our identification is right, we shouldn't see the impacts of tariff changes in these communities on like the adult population's completed education, right? That would be a signal that, that we've got something, uh, something problematic going on. So what we plotted here is we plotted um, the coefficient on our tariff variable um, for a regression of the fraction of the population in each age group in each district that's illiterate um, on the time varying uh, characteristics that we talked about before um, as well as using our, our instrument. And so this is the coefficient on the instrumented tariff. And what you can see is that in um, co populations that are, uh, say, under 20 in um, 2001, their literacy is, um, you would call tariff decline as a negative number, right? So their literacy rates are lower relative to the national average than um, uh, communities that weren't so heavily protected, that didn't experience such a large tariff decline. And then when you look in the adult populations, you see um, that this coefficient on, on tariff is, is zero throughout, which is sort of good news. If we thought that there was changes in the population mix that might be correlated with, um, with uh, tariff changes, um, 
that should show up by having you know, changes in the adult population. And the other thing that's kind of nice about this is that the timing is exactly right, which is that if you are 20 in 2001, right, you are uh, in primary school most likely, or a primary school age when the reforms start. And it would seem like it would be kind of unlikely that these people who are already maybe had a couple years of schooling should have their literacy really substantially affected by reform that's going to play out over the next few years. But in the cohorts younger than that is where we start seeing these effects. Okay? So, um, primary school completion rates um, in general aren't statistically significant unless we pool them across ages, um, but there's a similar picture there where the effect seems to clearly be in the exposed populations and not in the, uh, the older populations that shouldn't be treated. Okay? So uh, in summary, what we found through here is that child labor seems to be declining, schooling increasing in India over this period. The declines in child labor and increases in schooling are smaller in areas that have been heavily impacted by liberalization. Um, the magnitudes are, are small relative to the aggregate trends, um, but they're still substantive. And the question then becomes, what's underlying this? Here I'm going to be short because in part we're running out of time and I don't want to keep us from, from having too much um, lunch here. Um, and unfortunately the, um, the version of the paper that's currently written um, that's in the hallway ends where, where I've stopped now. And the next step um, is very much uh, where we are and where we're going. This is very much a work in progress. We kind of have identified what we think are the main channels through which trade liberalization um, and these tariff changes in particular might affect child labor and schooling. Um, we think it will work through um, uh, the income side. It might affect the employment opportunities of adults or the return on their activities. Um, it might affect the employment opportunities of children. Uh, it might affect the prices of intermediate inputs of consumption goods and the returns to education. Now, there are kind of two ways that we could proceed at this point. One might be to sort of uh, try to, um, try to you know, directly estimate returns to education, directly quantify adult employment effects, um, intermediate price effects, um, and, and go from there. But as I mentioned, the data limitations are really quite, quite severe. Um, one of the biggest problems being that we essentially don't have wage data which gets, uh, creates a problem um, for, for any wage identifying any wage effects, for example. So um, the way that the paper uh, proceeds from this point is to um, try to build measures of tariff exposure that work through adult employment, child employment, using the input-output tables to get at tariff exposures through um, intermediate inputs, um, using the household survey to try to get at tariff exposures to the consumption side. And when we do that exercise, um, what we find is that the, what we seem to be capturing seems to be something that's working through the adult employment channel. Okay? That, that everything else is very imprecisely measured, but on um, things like uh, exposure through child employment, exposure through intermediate inputs, and consumption um, all have the opposite signs. That they seem to be the, the price changes um, that are occurring in the economy as a result of, um, you know, exposure to tariffs on intermediate inputs seem to be working towards um, increasing schooling um, and, uh, and decreasing child labor. So the results we're capturing then seem to be something that's particular to adult employment, and what might that be? Um, we know from other research that the tariff measures we're using are, are correlated with relative increases in poverty in the population. 
Um, and I think just to be clear, since I'm also um, short on time on this, what I'll do now is I'll, I'm going to stop trying to be so precise um, with this year effect. And, and we'll just bear in mind that there are large year effects in the background. And let's just talk about the, the, the signs of the tariff coefficients that we're observing um, given that year effect that's going on in the background. And just bearing in mind that they're not overwhelming the aggregate trends in general. Okay. So um, we know uh, that associated with these districts that were heavily protected that experienced large tariff declines, experienced a relative increase in poverty as well. Um, the results of uh, decreasing schooling and more kids working could also be consistent with declining returns to education, though. Okay? So it might not just be poverty that we're observing. The way we get at this declining returns to education, given that we don't observe wages, is we sort of assume that people have um, normal labor supply curves so that they work more if their wages are higher. Right? And then we look at differences in the adult population of the labor supply, the illiterate and the illiterate, with the idea that maybe the way people infer returns to education is they look at the differences in wages between the literate population and the illiterate population. When we do that, what we find actually is that a tariff decline, a negative number, is associated with less work in the illiterate population, more work um, in the literate population. So if there's normal labor supply curves here, the Adult labor supply responses would seem to suggest that if anything returns to education might be increasing. The so that's the opposite direction of, of what might explain the relative declines in, in education we're observing. Okay? So um, if it's the poverty story, um, uh, why might there be a relationship between um, uh, poverty and, and, and schooling? Um, well. One of the things that's that interesting to look at here is just look at the types of activity changes that we observe. In particular, you know, we saw before we observe um, kids going to school more. Uh, I mean, kids going to school less when there are tariff declines. Um, and we observe kids working without attending school more. Um, if we look at the, the categories, though, um, that we also observe um, more than we see increases in kids working without attending school, we see kids not attending school and not doing anything, increases in idle status. And if we look at the types of work that kids do, we see that this increase in kids who are working only and not attending school um, are, are largely in domestic work. So it's not those, those kids that are working more without attending school aren't going to the market and earn wages. Instead, they're helping out around the family, uh, family doing household chores and things like that. So that suggests to us that maybe the underlying factor that's causing there to be this association between um, uh, child labor uh, and uh, uh, schooling, uh, a sorry, child labor and, and uh, what we're inferring are our local poverty rates might be um, the avoidance of school fees. That is, the child's largest economic contribution to the household might be, hey, we don't have to pay school fees for me. Uh, and that, that might be what we're capturing. Um, so if we accept that there aren't any impacts of tariffs on, on anything other than poverty, which is broadly consistent with the data, but to me seems very strong, that actually suggests an IV strategy that can help quantify how important these changes in poverty are for, for child labor and schooling, which is that we'll use um, the, uh, in, in our specification with all of the time-varying controls, et cetera, um, we'll use the average tariff level in a district as an instrument for uh, the poverty rate in the district. Okay. Um, which is a very strong exclusion restriction, right? It's ruling out effects of tariffs on, on the employment of these kids through any channel other than poverty. And I, the data are consistent with that, but I think that's a strong assumption. Um, when we do that, we, uh, we get estimates of how child labor um, and schooling responds to poverty. Just to put these in some sort of context, if we look at the headcount ratio for schooling, um, our results would imply that the elimination of poverty in India at this point would basically get us to universal schooling enrollment. Um, if you looked backwards, if you wanted to extrapolate, our results would imply that um, 
uh, about half of the increase in schooling that occurs in India over the 80s and the 90s um, owed to diminishing poverty, and the other half owing to something else. So what do we draw from this? Um, well, we draw that there seems to be some evidence that there are potentially long-term consequences of these short-term adjustment costs through, through how they impact child labor and schooling. They're not large enough to offset the large underlying trends. Okay? That's a really important qualification. Um, the data seem most consistent with schooling costs being the underlying critical factor um, driving these kids to, to relatively withdraw from school. What does this mean? Well, John Taylor kind of began today talking about uh, the idea of uh, getting the IMF and the WTO together. Um, and this implies that maybe there is some role for social protection groups um, in that process as well. Um, in particular, one of the questions that arises, well, um, can simple interventions uh, that mitigate schooling costs maybe offset some of the, these impacts of schooling uh, and child labor? Um, and then specific to India, what sorts of interventions can you do for these kids who um, who are older and are out of school, how can they be transitioned back into formal education? And in fact, these are the kinds of, of policy questions um, uh, and evaluation questions that are kind of the frontier of the child labor research um, program right now. Um, and then just this important caveat uh, that we really have to bear in mind is that our results do not at all imply that trade reform leads to a decline in schooling or an increase in child labor. Trade reform could very easily be behind these large aggregate trends if as much as 10% of them um, are, are, uh, of these aggregate trends owed to, to tariff reforms, then the net effect, even in the most severely affected district, would, would still be positive towards increasing schooling and, and reducing child labor. Okay. Thank you. Back to you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I think this is a stimulating paper and it's got lots of interesting work. And uh, it was... Uh, um, very exciting to have the opportunity to read it, even though uh, the version I had was uh, without uh, what is probably the most challenging, most interesting part. Uh, Eric was uh, kind enough to send me, this is work in progress in a way, he sent me some slides that gave me an idea of what, uh, what was going on and that, that, that was very useful. Uh, so let me very briefly summarize the, um, uh, what is done in the paper. Um, basically what they do is they ask what are the consequences of trade liberalization on child labor and schooling and the question is asked that, uh, in the context of the trade liberalization in India and they consider uh, children aged 10 uh, to 14. The identification strategy, uh, the liberalization implied tariffs were reduced uh, at a low uh, uniform level However, there were, uh, to start with, very different levels uh, in different sectors. The reduction was, was therefore very different in different sectors. Before the reform, different districts had different industry composition. This introduced an additional variation in the reduction of protection level if one thinks that there is some uh, labor market segmentation. One thing that you cannot blame uh, the authors for is to hide anything under the carpet. They are extremely... Um, um, for coming towards putting all the right caveats. And uh, the one that I think is crucial that Eric repeated about 17 times, but it's worth repeating one more, is that uh, there is, this is in the context of this big reduction in child labor and increase in schooling over the same period, which might as well be caused by um, uh, the, the trade reforms of that period. 
so what the what what the paper does not identify is the is the absolute level that this might have had is just the, the relative uh, the relative size and in this sense is uh, uh, is interesting. The authors also have an additional worry about the endogeneity of the tariff reduction. Um, effectively endogeneity of the initial conditions. They talk a, a lot about this traded sector uh, and stuff. Uh, and they propose an instrument which is basically the same variable as the, um, uh, as the one they use uh, as a measure of tariffs, except that it's constructed with different weights. So they, put, they, don't, they throw away all the employment in non-traded sector and just uh, use employment in traded sector so they, they get the differences. With, um, uh, with, uh, with, uh, because of difference in weights. Now, I must say that this is the part that I find least convincing in the paper. I don't want to make a big deal of it, uh, but uh, I don't see why this um, um, endogeneity of tariffs, and uh, by, by that meaning, these heterogeneous pre-existing trends uh, could be uh, taken care of by changing the weights in, in, in this way. Uh, I, I guess, and let me voice, uh, as I say, this is not a huge deal for me, but uh, it's a symptom of what is going to be my main complaint here, which is not much a complaint uh, uh, about the paper and the research agenda, but more uh, wants to be um, um, an encouragement to the authors to, to, to pursue that. And, and I guess the, 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 it's the first symptom of the lack of a, of a model uh, behind these correlations, or articulate model. And if you read the paper and if you listen to, to Eric's presentation, it seems, it's clear that they're thinking in that direction, and, and I very much encourage them to, to go even further. <clears throat> they also conduct some robustness uh, analysis, uh, which is uh, uh, in, uh, in parts quite convincing, I think, and in other parts less convincing, So, but, uh, but it's there. The result is <clears throat> that in the face of a general reduction in child labor and increasing in schooling, the district that experienced stronger reduction uh, de decreased child labor less. And the result is stronger in rural areas and is stronger for the IB strategy, which again, given my perplexity about the instrument, I found a little bit puzzling, but, uh, but, but, but it's... Uh, now, the big, the big challenge is that what are the mechanisms behind this? What is the model behind this, these correlations? Um, and the, other, uh, the others consider the effect through other variables, consumption, adult, uh, in, uh, adult income returns to education. Uh, and they try to identify the mechanisms through this. I must say that this is the part that uh, I, um, you know, I didn't completely understand the logic. And, my understanding is that what they do is to take this, uh, this measure, and they always compute the same measure, except they change the weights by interacting with uh, the uh, input-output matrix by considering this adult, uh, adult thing. It's not completely clear in my mind, but this is because uh, I've learned about this in the last five hours, or maybe less. <laughs> so I need, I, I'm slow, I need time to absorb things. Uh, but it's not completely clear in my mind how this takes, uh, goes at the, at the mechanisms. So let me, let me give my main comments. So is the, uh, the first one is, is the identification strategy credible? What does the IV approach really tell us and what are the mechanisms? And I should mention that the second and third point are basically the same in the, in, as I was saying. So as I say, the others are completely aware of the potential problem 
problems created by pre-existing trends in child labor that could be correlated with the initial conditions, uh, with the initial level of protection, because that's what is driving their, uh, the initial difference in, in, uh, in, uh, in protection is what is driving uh, their identification if these pre-existing trends were uh, present. And there could be many ways through this which this could, uh, could uh, work. Technology adoption, education composition, catching up in, uh, in terms of poverty and stuff, all this could give you uh, these types, uh, these types of trends. And I say I cannot blame the authors for not being, for coming about this, that limitations. And, uh, you know, as I've been, uh, I've been um, spending most of my life looking at empirical papers, both in terms of uh, reading them, editing them, writing them. In the end, you know, 99% is an act of faith. Identification is either you believe it or you don't. Uh, this is no different here. Now, uh, what I'm a little bit more critical here is what, what uh, is, does the IV approach really tells us. And I think what is missing uh, in this is, 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 is a model. Is a model that, uh, so, okay, suppose that my problem is that I, I believe that these uh, initial conditions, these differences across districts in the level of protection in 1991 um, is uh, correlated with, uh, with these uh, pre-existing trends. Now, what I would like to know is what is the uh, model that describes this correlation? Uh, when, uh, you know, when we did our paper with, uh, with Nina and uh, Penny on uh, Colombia, what we were worried about were political economy stories, and we, we tried to uh, work our way through this. This is not to say that the identification assumption, as the knows, uh, that we are Penny, Nina, and I uh, use in that paper uh, are, are more credible than we do, but at least you get a, co uh, um, um, a conceptual framework, which, uh, and, and I, I don't quite see it here. Um, and, and, and what is also missing, which is, uh, brings me to the next point, is a model which describes uh, uh, the relationship between tariffs and child labor. You know, this is an interesting correlation. It's, a, it's a, a, in a way an interesting reduced form. What, where does this come uh, uh, from? Uh, and that was you know, my, my point about the particular instrument they use. I just don't get it. Um, but, uh, but that's probably me. Um, now, what I, this is definitely uh, becomes crucial for the interpretation of, of the mechanisms. Uh, what I would like to see, and I understand there are lots of data limitations, but what I would like to see is to say, look, this is, um, uh, this is a, a family that is facing this decision, and these are the trade-offs. So the kids can go to school, this is the, uh, or, and these are the costs related to school. This is, uh, he can go to work, and this is the money that he makes if he goes to work. He can work at home, this is the marginal product that, uh, that uh, and then, uh, and then if he goes to school, he has got this future return to education. That, uh, that, uh, so, so where does the tariff come in? So there might be changes in all this. In fact, in the version of the paper that I have, there is a little model that, that, that works uh, at least in part through these things. But then I would like to see the, the explicit uh, um, um, mechanism. And where possible, rather than doing, constructing these strange interactions, but then again, I could be, it could just be me that doesn't understand it, I would like to see what is the effect of the tariffs on the wages, on consumption, on the income, um, 
in a way, you know, link it more directly the stuff that Peti has done on the on the poverty and uh, uh, to your uh, to your thinking. And then, can you map this? Are the families, are the districts that see this increase those that that also see the the the, um, uh, the less reduction in, in into this? And the absence of this, I think, is uh, is, a, is a high price. And I think uh, this is a really interesting correlation. Uh, it, they could be much more if you add this, uh, uh, this additional uh, missing pieces that um, that uh, could uh, fill in the voids and give you and give you some more leverage on, on unlocking this uh, this mystery. And as I say, we'd like to see effects on wages and unemployment and or, or possibly on volatility, which might be uh, really important. All this is made, uh, let, me, let me mention this um, uh, before, before I, um, okay, actually, let me, uh, at the end it could be a really, really simple story, uh, at least uh, your evidence, it could be that simply that there is some sort of non-linearity, so there are these positive effects in the aggregate, then, then when you go to really large reductions in tariffs, uh, you know, you don't get all the, it's a simply decreasing return. And so uh, you could be measuring uh, simply this. Now, all this, all these mechanisms, is just not an academic curiosity. Uh, I think they will, the, the, the answer to really, and that's what uh, Eric was referring to at the end of his presentation. If you want to think about policy implications, um, it's really important to know where this, uh, this, these things, if they're really there, where they come from. Because then, you know, Santiago Levis here is, is in. Uh, one of the main promoters and inventors of these conditional cash transfer programs, which are really simple programs, which in other contexts have been have been quite uh, effective, are these the kind of things? Those programs, what they do is they change the price of education. Your latest suggestions, which I I don't uh, uh, fully understand because of the lack of the model, but seem to indicate that that might be uh, a, a big deal. And then then there's a more, Together with uh, trade liberalization, you might want to implement those sort of things. If it's something different, then you might want to design different interventions. Uh, <coughs> if it's the lack of labor mobility across sectors, maybe you want to deregulate the labor market more and, and the like. So uh, uh, just to conclude, I, I think that you know, this is a very valuable um, a set of correlations uh, that are they sound credible given all the work and all the uh, evidence that you present. And my encouragement is to go uh, a step further and identify and look at other outcomes and relate the different outcomes with the help of a, of a structural model that, uh, that could um, uh, be much more informative in terms of uh, policy prescription. Thanks very much. Thank you. Let's take a few questions. Um, um, let's see. Who's up? Yeah. Hi. I, I was uh, wondering about this issue that you raised uh, about the trade reform being introduced as part of uh, an instructional reform package and the fact, for example, that uh, labor reforms were introduced at the same time. So this, this would be particularly problematic in terms of your identification if these, for example, labor reform has different effects on different districts. And I may think of a story about um, labor reforms having different effects on districts that have more volatile sectors, which may also be the tradable sectors. So um, it would be important to try to control in some way for that, maybe try to get a, a measure of um, labor deregulation 
and interact that also with volatility of sectors in different districts so that, that you can try to control for that somehow. The other thing is that I, I liked uh, your idea of trying to, to understand the channels through which this is working. So I, I thought about this idea of separating boys and girls, but the way you interpret that is that your results indicate that this is a, a way to avoid schooling fees. Uh, on the other hand, you may think that trade, for example, um, reduces discrimination for the less skilled women more, and right, you, you may think about alternative stories where the effect would be greater on women simply because, for example, tariffs um, reduce the returns to skilled moths for, for women. And so it's, it's not very clear that that really may allow you to disentangle one story from the other. But, but I thought it was a good attempt. It's just that I, I guess I, I took the precisely the opposite interpretation of it. Uh, again, on the uh, mechanisms through which um, your story is going, one possible thing, if you say that kids might drop out of the school because of the school fee, but do you know whether the, the, the kid studies in a private school or a public school? Because public schools must be free. So, no, not in India. Okay, in Brazil, the public schools are free. Uh, in Brazil, they're, they're not in the sense that there are no costs associated. It's just you don't have actual school fees. Oh, there's no fee, yeah. There's no fee. But they're they very pay. costly in Brazil. Okay. And the other thing is the empl employment status of the parents, because there is this literature on the added worker effect. So it might be that uh, the, the parent loses his job because he works in an industry that's not international competitive, and then the, the mother um, goes to the labor market and works, and then the kid has to drop out of school to take care of the other kids. So the results might be different according to whether he has brothers and sisters or not. This kind of thing that I thought. I, I, I come back to the tariff story. The tariff is obviously what drives the identification, and you use a lot of different measures. I was wondering if you could just throw them all in in one and make a little horse race and show us, is it the input side, is it the output side, which is the measure of tariffs that gives us best? Uh, predictions, just as a notion. On the endogeneity story, now, I had actually misunderstood you first, I think, when you gave the talk. I had understood the level today is predicted by the level in the past, uh, or you said actually not, no, whatever you said. So here, 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 are the, here are the pictures. If the level today is fully predicted by the level in the past, I interpret that as full evidence for exogenous imposition. It's basically the tariff schedule was inclined by whatever, 30%, and then it shifts down and still has the same inclination. That would be exogenous, but would not give you the district variation or the cross-industry variation, which will then induce different effects on districts because they have different industry compositions. What you say here um, is that the change in tariffs are the strains in tariffs are the strongest in the most protected sectors. Now, if I were India and the IMF told me, liberalize, I'd just shift down and say, all my lobbying industries are, um, all the industries that lobbied for the high level in the past, they'll still be more protected than the others. So I'll make them all happy. I will, in fact, shift the curve in levels and not tilt it. So I would interpret that as a sign of endogenous tariff changes. 
to get around all of that, I'm... Um, okay, you'll disagree later, I guess. Yeah, I, I, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So to get all around that, um, I think a good way would be just to tell a political economy story, how present are the lobbies from industries, how present are the lobbies from districts, and um, argue one way or another that once the IMF came in, they really did just what the IMF wanted and didn't favor any industries any further. The um, last point I want to make, if I also want to fool the IMF into believing that I really liberalized, I'll cut the tariffs where the quantity restrictions are really binding and keep them um, low where they aren't, so that um, if you measure tariffs, you might really not get the picture anyway. That's the last question here. Here comes the mic. During your presentation very much, and uh, uh, the question is, as uh, uh, Orazio asked, what is it this uh, tariff variable, what is it your uh, district-level tariff variable capturing, and what are the mechanisms? The model, if I were to uh, think about a model, the model I would start at the household-level model, and there what the constraints uh, uh, in the allocation of uh, resources for child education, how is it being affected by whatever it is that is happening? And uh, there, you, as you well know, in the Indian context, particularly in the rural context, self-employed households are the largest uh, proportion. It's not the uh, households for wage employment or whatever. And so that means you have to think through mechanisms and they, they think through what uh, whatever might have been happening to the output prices and also input prices. And if you, uh, one of the products that many of these households produce are agricultural products. And as you well know, Indian liberalization didn't touch uh, agriculture in any significant way at all uh, uh, from 1991 on. It's much of the tariff the liberalization was on uh, uh, industrial products and agriculture, the liberalization, extension of liberalization to agriculture products was very limited. That's one thing. Second, uh, if we were to leave aside the whole indirect way of uh, uh, measuring uh, liberalization effect at the district and go more directly, you have the consumption expenditure schedule uh, uh, in the, for the same set of households uh, from which you have collected the, uh, the uh, child labor data. You, the, you have information on the prices they paid for, uh, the, for the things that they bought and the prices they realized on outputs that they sold. So you have, uh, uh, in some sense, in household level, price level in the data, price da uh, data in the, in the consumption schedule. Also, your, uh, you mentioned about the costs of uh, tuition costs or whatever costs in schooling. There again, the consumption expenditure schedule gives you this information. So you are not using any of that, and you are using, you are using essentially the synthetic uh, liberalization variable uh, at the district level, which uh, seems to me to be somewhat uh, uh, very remote from the variables that, in fact, more proximately affect the decisions of the households. Okay. Um, 
You want to do a short response? I'm the only do thing a, between your response and us is lunch out there. Yeah. I'm going to do super quick. Yeah. Um, so uh, when Orazio asked me to present this last Thursday, um, I, I warned him that there wasn't a lot of time uh, between the two, so he'd have to deal with a fairly incomplete uh, a paper. And I really appreciate um, taking the time to wade through just a mix of different things that I sent him. Um, and I know it was a challenge. Uh, a consistent theme is the need to embed it, this interpretation of results within a, a solid theoretical framework. And that's exactly um, what I was working on the airplane yesterday. Um, so um, expect to see that uh, within the context of a, uh, the revised version. That said, because of data limitations, we won't be able to put uh, as much structure on it as one would like, in part because there are incredible changes in the consumption modules um, and uh, also in how wage data itself is collected in the NSS over time. So if you look at consumption expenditures, for example, you see large declines in schooling associated with our uh, schooling expenditures. Now there's a questionnaire change, and, and so we don't quite know how to interpret our, you know, are these declines in schooling expenditures associated with tariffs having something to do with the questionnaire change and, and how that heterogeneously affects households across areas, or is it something that we're capturing? But we do want to include those within, within the body of the paper. And I think there are just so many good comments and good questions um, that I, I think the only other thing I want to emphasize is really the extent to which our identification does not come from tariff changes. It comes from differences in the implementation of those tariffs, uh, the effects of those tariffs across space, owing to the pre-liberalization industry mix. So Adriana's point about, hey, are there other reforms that are going to be correlated with your pre-existing um, industrial composition and might also be correlated with the size of tariff changes? Uh, that's really the number, one, the number one identification concern one wants to have in this. And so that's really with the attention of, uh, of all the robustness exercises, and especially uh, these sort of counterfactual tests where we're not seeing any of these effects on the adult population. Um, uh, but we are seeing them on, on the tree group, why those are really, I think, important for interpreting the results. And yes, uh, we will, uh, in the next version, forthcoming very soon, uh, we, we should have a lot more of what I think um, Orazio and, and you all were hoping for. Thank you very much for the comments. And let's eat. <laughs> The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.